So check this out. I got word that Hulu threw this crazy party in Beverly Hills with literally all of the biggest reality TV stars. I'm talking about all the Bravo lebs, Candy Burris, Portia Williams, James Kennedy, Jax Taylor, even Captain Lee and Kate Chastain. Here's the genius part. If you want to find out what happened at the party, you have to watch the commercials. Yes, I know I'll be tuning in and then signing up for a free trial to get my favorite reality TV shows at Hulu.com. Star Trek Picard Season 1, Episode 8, Broken Pieces, is over, but we are just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. And my name is Jessica Lee, and here with me is just one of the five emergency holograms that I bring on to talk about what happened on this show every single week, Mr. Mike Bloom. I'm going to be the American version. I think I'm going to spare our listeners the disservice of offending whatever country I might be representing with a horrible middle school play-esque accent and just leave the handiwork to Santiago Cabrera. Thank you very much. Oh, but Mike, don't you have a theater degree? Can't you just like pull these pull these accents out? Oh, yeah. I love those assumptions, right? Of like, oh, you have a theater degree. Sing a song for me right now. Uh, I just the the loops that people go through is like they take their own transconduit warps to get to the logic of oh if you're a performer you must be able to do this at beck and call though I mean maybe I could do I guess I could do the E E H because the E E H was basically a Scotty impersonation so it's almost like <laughs> a copy of a copy speaking of uh you know replicants and holograms and all that I feel like they're all copies of a copy when you really think about it um it's like it's like multiplicity yeah. I mean, they made the copy the copy, and then that one was like kind of a little weird. Yeah, I think the only one is probably probably the EMH, because that's the one that has... I feel like that's the closest to Santiago Cabrera's voice, like his actual lilt. So that probably is the most normalized one. Uh, yeah, and then, you know, you have the, the broguish Scott. You have, you know, the, the Spanish-speaking gruff man. You have like the sort of Midwestern-esque <laughs> close talker. E-H-H, and then you have another one that sort of sounds similar to the E-M-H, but he dresses differently, so you know it's not the E-M-H. Yeah, he has the same hairstyle, and I really feel like they needed to do something different with that hair. Like, they could give him, like, one of those tin-tin quiffs or, <laughs> or you know, let it stick up to all spiky like Calvin of Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah, I was going to say, oh, actually, speaking of Calvin and Hobbes, it reminded me of the Transmogrifier when Calvin went in and like a bunch of different Calvins came out. Like there was Oh, that was the Calvin. duplicator. The oh, Transmogrifier happened as a result of the duplicator. Exactly. Uh, maybe this was also, maybe this was one of the prophecies. Maybe Calvin's box is the admonition that like many, <laughs> many years ago in a comic panel, a kid made this experiment and he, you know, made science collapse. And now you must not do that again. You look inside the circle, and it's just like a copy of the authoritative Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> exactly. Bill Watterson is Sunian Noong in this uh, Noonian Soong in this universe. <laughs> I, I love it. I, I but that's canon now, as far as I'm concerned. So I like it. Yeah. So, Mike, this was kind of a bonkers episode, and there's so much to unpack here that I really can't wait to get into all of it with you because there's so much 
weird Star Trek arcana in this entire episode that I'm sure we're not even going to get to half of it. Yeah, but this we're is, sure going to try. This is info dump the episode. And it makes sense if you're looking ahead. It seems like episodes 9 and 10 at in Arcadia Ego, uh, they're two-parting it, much like they did the Discovery Season 2 finale so i feel like this is the last proper episode of star trek picard season one and from that capacity it really serves as like the you know the the end of the penultimate chapter and in that regard we really had to get everything out there as to what the stakes are and what's going on and there's surely going to be more twists and turns down the road but i mean we had to have a ready room session on the La Serena at the end of this episode to actually recap everything we know. That's how much information got leaked over the course of this episode. Yeah, this is this is completely insane. And I don't know about you, Mike, but I feel like we learned a lot this episode that feels a little bit too convenient. Mm, interesting. Ex- uh, explain how. Like starting with I'm going to guess that Romulus was at one point a very large planetary system with many millions of people. So why is it then that all of the Romulans we know know each other? (laughs) This seems kind of – it's kind of convenient that it turns out that the one other Romulan we know outside of the Jatvash and the Coatmulat is like the ant – of one of the Javash. Do you think, who do you think was accepted into the Javash first, Rizzo or Ramda? Because you have to imagine that like one referred the other, right? Yeah, well, I would assume it's Ramda because she's older. Right, and she's also, R- Rizzo reveals in her little bedside chat that apparently Ramda was like, his, her and Nerex not only aunt, but pseudo-guardian, depending on, I guess, when they became orphans. So I, you could imagine, yeah, that Ramda probably found out through her own connections, whether it was through O or... I think those other people, before they bashed themselves with rocks on the heads or clawed their faces off and sort of brought Rizzo in on it, but Rizzo outshone them all. Rizzo was the only one to, I guess, technically withstand the, uh, you know, admonition in that she was literally the only one left standing. Yeah, I think that's because she's a psychopath. Um <laughs> I, I'm just going to come right out and say it because I, I, this feels very like this is much less of the great storytelling that we have come to expect from Picard up to this point. We get this kind of this scene of like they're learning they're learning the secret that's going to destroy their minds. And then there's one person whose mind it doesn't destroy. She's just kind of standing there like watching all of these other people damage themselves after they learn the secret. She's like, oh, yeah, another day at the office. Do you think that, you know, is it the one person who's sort of ends up being the most mentally sound at the end of the admonition, do you think they sort of become the next, like, storyteller? So you think in the next generation, if there is a next generation of the Jatvash meeting, that instead of O leading it, it would be Rizzo, and they sort of just pass that torch? I mean, maybe. Maybe you only have to run the meeting one time. Because you'd have to imagine, obviously, O is not 200,000 years old, so you'd have to imagine she probably learned it from somebody, right? Yeah. I My question is, like, does she serve out a term? Like, mm. do they conduct this ceremony a few times and then she passes the torch? Or is it like every time it's a new person leading the ritual? Or it could be like a tontine situation where, like, just all <laughs> the other members of her class just died out and she was the one left sort of holding the bag at the end of it to have to carry on this tradition. Uh, is that is that hosted by Rob Mariano? 
Yes, exactly. Everyone that's you truly learn how to become the the master of everything. Yeah, I I mean Yeah, speaking of accents, I'm not gonna do. Yeah, exactly. Uh this this opening scene, I mean, this was an interesting episode in that again, we found out a lot, but it doesn't necessarily feel like it wasn't completely new information. I would say maybe with the exception of Rios' story, which we knew literally nothing about, and anything we extrapolated about it was completely wrong. Like, obviously, we knew the Jat Vash had an anti-Android agenda. We just happened to find out literally, you know, the message that they were passed down and why exactly they're preventing the coming of the Destroyer, the Ganmadan, if you will. I thought it was really fun, though, that the fact that the Jat Vash are apparently an all-female organization. You know, O said something about foremothers, because the only other Romulan organization we know, the Kovat Milat, is also all women. I would not have expected, Jess, that the Romulans would be like the leaders in girl power when it comes to positions of leadership. Look, the Romulans are very feminine forward society. And it's it's one of the great it's one of the great things about them. You know, I didn't come into this series loving the Romulans, but every new thing I find out about them, I just like them more. Well, yeah, and I mean, listen, anything's going to be better than like the combined Klingons and Ferengi, considering how sexist their societies are. <laughs> I mean, the Klingons, at least, like, by the time Deep Space Nine rolled around, they had some fierce Klingon warriors that were kind of of the mindset of, you know, if I'm going to have a Parmok Kai, they have to they have to earn it by killing a bunch of people or something like that. But, yeah, by and large, um, we won't even get into the Ferengi of it all. Um, no, yeah. And I, I think that even uh, in TNG, we had, like, the exploits of the Dura sisters, which say what you want to about them being heroic. But they at least were showing tact there. So I think that the that was not the were... only thing they were showing. No, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's something I'd like to forget. Were the the Dura sisters and the Sela of it all. Speaking of other female Romulans in power. Uh, but yeah, it is, it is very interesting, like you said, that like it just so happens that... I mean, I guess we had assumed that Narek was involved in the Jat Vash. But I guess him being only Jat Vash adjacent, like, almost makes his character a little more pathetic in that regard, <laughs> that he's, like, doing all this, but he's not actually allowed in the clubhouse. Are you calling Narek a beta cuck? Oh, yes. <laughs> beta quadrant cuck. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we, we kind of knew um, from all of the Nerissa Narek interactions that we see that he was not the... He was not the the boss of of her, for sure. But uh, it is kind of great that it's this very matriarchal organization. Um, and in his, in you know, even though I don't really like Nerissa all that much, and she's not the she's not the greatest, most well developed character. I guess maybe I like her a little bit more because she's a feminist icon now. <laughs> there was one moment in Peyton's performance that I really enjoy, which is still in the flashback. When, you know, again, Rizzo's the only one left standing, and she says, we have to stop them, and O says, we will, and then Rizzo says, how? And you, you'd see that vulnerability in her eyes that we have not seen at all over the course of this season, and then in a glimpse, it turns from, you know, that hopelessness to, like, driven, and, you know, adamant about preventing this assumed apocalypse, no matter what it takes. And I guess that is her primary drive again would i like to see more elements of that character absolutely to not make it you know so two-dimensional but i at least appreciated that one moment that even someone like rizzo the admonition was a lot to her even if it didn't have her have her falling to her knees like everybody else 
Yeah, it's true. You even see like there's a single tear trickles down her cheek like she's like she's a Native American that caught somebody littering. Yes, or a Native American planet that's worshiping Captain Kirk. Yes. Uh, so you, you do you do get a sense that she is affected by it. And I think that was very smart direction um, on the part of the directors of this episode, because otherwise, without it, she does come off as a pure psychopath that is only motivated motivated by this desire to set right this thing that she saw in the thing and now at least like she is emotionally affected by it and there is some vulnerability behind that and i think i think that was a very smart choice uh on her part as well uh just the facial expression the way it's shifted very subtly i think in the hands of a lesser actor this would not be believable at all Right. And I would also say that, I mean, I don't know exactly, you know, if I was watching those admonitions, I'd turn to the, oh, and I'd be like, okay, so I guess we need a, like a fetus and a flower and a dying fox and a dead android. And that's going to help us somehow. Yikes. Yeah, this was the freaky Wonka tunnel of visions, Jess, of just random images, it seems. I mean, we called it last week that that was what it was going to be. Uh, and it's kind of one of those things where... You, we still don't know exactly what the secret is. It's just that um, we're gonna get uh, we're gonna get Android Ragnarok if we let androids happen. Is kind of the gist of the secret. But there's something like deeper and grosser and more event horizony about the whole situation that mm. I'm really okay if this is all we ever know about the secret. Now that I now that I kind of know, and we always kind of knew that was the gist of it. But I think. I think I've had exactly enough, exactly as much as I need to have now that I, you know, I spent the first half of the season complaining that we didn't have this. And now it's like, no, I'm good. I, I don't, I don't, I have as much as I need. Well, now that we, now that you say that, I guess we can sort of clarify officially what this prophecy is. Cause I, between my first viewing and my second viewing of the episodes, I sort of got different takes on it. Cause I had thought that, okay, it was just, it was like a, a Skynet situation where this civilization, let AI evolve to a, a completely insane level, and as a result, they turned on their masters and wiped them out. But what they're talking about in the ready room at the end, specifically comparing it to like the Zephram Cockrum line, is that when AI evolves past a certain threshold, something external is going to come in and wipe everybody out. D did you have sort of a, an approach in terms of either interpretation of that? I mean, it's kind of splitting hairs at this point, isn't it? It's like you won't be around after it to know exactly what what transpired. You just know what the cause was and what the effect was. Yeah, I guess we'll get into it later. I, I have a theory that I co-opted uh, from another source that might depend on sort of what the interpretation is. Are, we also are you like the crazy guys on Reddit that are going off about the Iconians again? No, I'm not. You know, we're not doing Discovery Season 2. The Iconians are here type of stuff. Not yet. At least, though, there might be a discovery connection. Uh, spoiler <laughs> alert. But I'll also, I feel like the admonition. So I guess was this just left by like the last few members of this civilization that they were able to at least assemble this little glowing thing in the middle of the planet before they ended up getting wiped out? Well, they had assembled, they actually, it was assembled with much more care than that, because we know that this is this uh, strange eight-star system that they created by moving stars around. So we mm. that, we know they were at least that advanced that they had that capability. And then they created this thing that's very artificial, and it's created, I think it's purpose-built to house the admonition. Right, exactly. So it was a little bit of like they were making like a, 
a landing strip with lights along the side to sort of guide the Jadvash to be like, come here. We got something important here. You want to check it out? Yeah, it's like um, it's like glowing. It's like, you know, doctors hate us. This one weird trick helps you prevent oh, yeah, Android this really, Armageddon. Yeah, this really is Romulan clickbait, isn't it? That's why they're like freaking out. Maybe they got infected by a virus. They didn't have their pop-up blockers up and Rizzo did. Yeah, I mean, I we didn't see the whole details of the Wonka Tunnel vision, so maybe that's what it was. So I think, speaking of theories, I think we can officially say that the, like, Borg are descended from Romulan or Romulans created the Borg theory is properly debunked, as it turns out that the Romulans that were assimilated are all freaky-deaky now because of Ramda's grief from the admonition, and that corrupted the system. Yeah, basically, Ramda broke the Borg. And they literally say you broke the Borg cube by the sheer force of your despair, which is kind of poetic and beautiful. It's interesting because you would think that I get in all the Borg's assimilation times, you know, we've seen populations before in Star Trek series past that like have been living very grievous, despondent lives on the run from the Borg. You would think they'd face this more often. But I guess, you know, when we heard about the Jadvash all the way back in episode two, that they held a secret so terrible that it would drive them insane even knowing it, that this thing is just such an overpowered you know, piece of knowledge that it defies any sort of Borg pushback. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It's like the one piece of information that even the Borg can't handle it. It's right, that it's the, bad. It's the grain in the sand, essentially, that, that sort of compromises the microchip, as it were. And that's, you know, where we end up now. And I guess, you know, we're going to say goodbye to the Borg cube here, too, assumingly. I don't, I don't unless... You know, uh, Seven decides to fly the Borg cube now with Elnor to wherever they're going. But it's it's weird. It's weird saying goodbye. I guess now that they sort of found its use and told its origin story, there's really no need, especially with the executive director gone, to really include it more in the narrative. Yeah, yeah. But before we get into the Borg cube, I want to I want to highlight one more thing we learned from watching the admonition, which I think we had speculated on quite a bit this season. And that is we do actually learn what is up with Commodore O. Yes, she's the best of both worlds, baby. She's half Romulan, half Vulcan. So she was able to, for lack of a better term, pass and get into Starfleet that way. Half Romulan, half Vulcan, all badass. Yeah, and she really is. I mean, she's able to be part of a secretive cabal. And also do mind melts. So, and it's interesting, you know, I never heard of a half Romulan, half Vulcan. It really makes me wonder, you know, is there a world in the whole re- post-reunification two-part episode of TNG where, like, were there secret lovers who were Romulan and Vulcan and they produced this, like, forbidden child in O that now has, you know, the abilities of both species? I'm not entirely sure, but it's crazy to think of a character that is actually half Romulan, half Vulcan, given their very storied past. You know, I feel like somebody somewhere must have written a character for an email-based role-playing game that had a half Vulcan, half Romulan, because this seems like the kind of crap that people used to pull in those RPGs that I would play all the time. Oh, yeah. Oh, my guy's a half barbarian, uh, half sorcerer, but he's also practicing to become uh, a rogue at the same time. But he's a half elf. His, His uncle was an elf, so he has dark vision. Like, really just trying to custom build your character here. Yeah, yeah, this could be very Mary Sue in the wrong hands. Although, if they want to have a Star Trek spinoff series that is about the forbidden love story between a Vulcan and a Romulan that ended up producing Commodore O, I'm here for that. 
I feel like that'd be a good short trek, actually. And considering how much they really like to, especially as we're, as we're talking about, like really lean on canon, I feel like that would be an interesting sort of like, what is what does a Star Trek version of Romeo and Juliet look like? Yeah, Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, I, I, I would definitely watch that short trek and not just because I have to talk about it with you. That's always, you know, the non-obligatory viewings are probably always the best. But yeah, and I guess, you know, do you think that O started infiltrating Starfleet only after this meeting? Or do you think she's been sort of pulling this con for a while now? I I wonder how long it takes to work your way up to chief of security. I I have to imagine she was groomed for this probably from birth. I think to get that high up in Starfleet, you pretty much have to have connections. You have to be that driven. So I would guess that she was probably raised in this Jatvash sort of philosophy and told, okay, you're going to, this is going to be your trajectory and you're going to be excel in these things and we're going to put you in Starfleet and you're going to pretend to be a Vulcan. I think that is really in line with the kind of secrecy and espionage that the Romulans excel at. Mm. Yeah, and you also have to think about the timeline as well. We'll find out that the incident on the Ibn Majin, where O basically passed down an edict to uh, Captain Vandermeer to essentially kill the synths on Psyche, happened nine years ago. So even if you just take that abbreviated timeline, I don't think she's ascending the ranks in just five years. So it, like you said, it's clear that she was sort of a mole placed in Starfleet for quite some time now and she just sort of took a break to step out to planet Aya and gather the Jat Vash to sort of let them in on the situation and then sub- you know then uh, subsequently plan this attack on Mars which we can officially confirm as an inside job. Yeah. And Mike, you got to remember that um I don't I assume it's the same for Romulans as it is for Vulcans, but Vulcans live a lot longer than humans and so you can be a lot older and still look like you're you know keeping it tight. So <laughs> She is probably she 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 could be like a hundred years old, and she could have been working for Starfleet for like forty years at this point. That's true, actually. Yeah, she could be. I mean, she could be like that person that like should have retired a while back, but like is still you know hanging in there. And you are right. Yeah, I just looked it up that they share the same long Vulcan lifespan, so it would only make sense that she's been sort of a career woman. And maybe that sort of has uh maybe I don't think she's again a hundred two hundred thousand years old, but maybe she has been much. Spent uh, had a longer tenure in the Jat Vash than we initially think. Uh, that maybe she's seen a couple of generations of classes of the Jat Vash go through. I'd be intrigued to see exactly what the Jat Vash, what their sort of uh, you know machinations were in the past. Uh, you know, it really does seem like. I mean, is it just like them trying to, getting reports about synthetics and just trying to like you know sniper them off whenever they come up, or do you think they sort of mounted? big campaigns to wipe them out well i think mike you have to guess i don't even remember if they outright said this but i've seen a lot of chatter about it online you have to assume that the inciting incident to put command commodore o into starfleet was probably the fact that a soong type android showed up in starfleet that's true yeah and i would say and this and that's what like about 25 years or so before we end up getting the flashback here so i can imagine that to your point the wheels might have been in motion and maybe you know in there actually i believe is an episode of tng i think it's actually data's day where there's a romulan visitor who actually has a lot of interest in data 
for all we know, we could retcon that to say that was like a, a secret Jotvash agent who is maybe trying to either take data out right there, right then, or at least find out more about him to bring Intel back to the Jotvash. Oh, yeah. It's it's all kind of amazing how much you can go back and look at and say, wow, that makes sense. So they have to have been thinking about that just because they're getting so many other details right. Yeah, I think it's that they're very, with the exception of Rizzo, it just seems like they're extremely methodical planners. I mean, again, they've existed for probably hundreds of thousands of years, and it's only been a myth. You know, it's only talked about by, like, drunken members of the Tal Shi'ar. So the fact that they're able to keep that so covert across all these planets uh, over all these years, you'd have to imagine they're really keeping their lips zipped until, again, Rizzo decides to just, like, start, you know, killing people in the middle of daylight. Yeah, it's it's kind of amazing that it never got out before that point. I mean, maybe it did, and then they prompted like a lot of action, like, oh, this planet found out? Oh, no, the planet was destroyed. I guess there was some sort of toxic gas in their atmosphere. You know, there could be a way for them to sort of clean up their mess, like they did with, like they tried to command Vandermeer to do, of like, hey, you killed these sins, now go clean up your mess so nobody knows that you did that. Yeah, yeah. And if we want to talk about like weird coincidences, we're going to have a lot to talk about when we start unpacking Vandermeer. But I think, is that where we want to go next? Or do we want to talk about, we want to go to the cube next, I think. Yeah, let's let's go to the cube. Let's sort of stay on, I guess we'll sort of wrap up like the Romulan side of things as the Romulan them- themselves are going to finally pack up from subletting the Borg cube. Uh, unfortunately, leaving many, many Borg in their wake. Jess, I never thought i would see the day that watching you know a bunch of borg get sucked out of the airlock into space and assumingly die right there right then like actually gave me a bit of an emotional stir and that's what star trek picard has done to me is as picard said a couple episodes ago look at them as victims not monsters and subsequently they were very much victims here yes they were going to be weaponized in that moment but they just mercilessly got sucked out of that airlock yeah and this is kind of amazing, like especially if you juxtapose it with some of the scenes in First Contact. Mm. It's like, oh, those were all people, yeah, and you just killed all those people, and you're the good guys. Yeah, and I, I mean, I guess I'll commend uh, Rizzo. I guess I'll commend her Centurion in particular for coming up with the idea of like, oh yeah, they're probably going to do this. So let's plan this contingency, and that's exactly what happened. But just like again, there was so much that happened in this episode, but man. Part of me really wishes that we just spent a good amount of time on the whole Seven of Nine, Elnor, Seven's plan to essentially create a mini collective in the cube. Because I cannot imagine as an XB, as a formerly assimilated, to have to wire yourself in to become the Borg Queen of this mini cube and willingly mind F a bunch of people, again, knowing how traumatizing that process is. And especially knowing that you're definitely signing their death warrant. I think the conflict of that was really interesting because she knows how awful it is. She's been in the collective. She's been a drone. And she now knows that it's possible to bring people back from that. And, you know, we don't have Hugh anymore, but given some time, you could probably bring some more of those people back. And instead, she's going to, you know take over their brains and make them fight to the death that's really upsetting and it probably brings back all kinds of like past traumas that she endured in her childhood yeah not only that but there's also another side of it which she vocalizes of yes i'm doing that 
And also at the same time, if I wire in, I may not want to give them up, which I feel like is actually the most frightening thing of all, let alone the fact that she has, you know, hundreds of lives in her hands is the fact that there is, I wouldn't say an addiction, but I imagine there's some sort of allure, right? You know, there's this, uh, this idea of like, not exactly a feeling of ecstasy, but when you connect, there's probably this feeling of being part of a collective that is something that she probably has pangs of missing. As she sort of talked about with Picard, she's never felt like she's been able to really truly become human after her time in the collective. And you can imagine that, like, it's sort of coming back home in a way. And I I wish, you know, I think one of the benefits of a past Star Trek series would be that they probably spend, like, an entire episode on this choice. Unfortunately, we had to relegate it to, like, a five-minute scene in total. And I feel like there's it's just such a meaty choice for the character that I feel like you could build out an entire series of scenes around the decision that she makes, the moral implications, you know, how it weighs on her, the ominous line at the end about how Annika still has stuff to do. And so I'm going to let her go. Like there's so much in there. Yeah, it is. It is a lot, especially to be what is essentially the C plot of an episode. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of insane that that's the speed at which we're going. And it's it's funny because at the beginning of this season, we talked a lot about how the action is going to be one cohesive story stretched out over 10 episodes. And then you have, you still have so much going on in this story that you have to condense this incredibly complicated decision and this incredibly complicated scene into like two very action heavy sequences. Yeah, and I guess, you know, talking about other stuff that happens, because while I I guess the plan to really overwhelm the Romulans with the entirety of the former collective doesn't end up happening, it seems like some of the XBs are around. I keep thinking that Rizzo exterminated all the XBs between last week and then the beginning here, but it seems like there are still more XBs as they jump Rizzo. I'll admit, Jess, I'm a little ticked off that she didn't die here. I felt like it would just would have been perfect for her character if she ends up getting jumped here by the very people that she's basically tormented for the past several episodes. I mean, it would be poetic justice, but I think there's probably more for her to do. I don't think I don't think her final boss battle is is, is quite it's not quite time for that. Yeah, I, I I think it would be the more fitting ending for the character, but I do get the point that especially because I mean I think she is like the anthropomorphic version of the big bad. I do acknowledge the fact that if indeed this destroyer prophecy is true, there might be a bigger big bad at hand, but she is sort of like the front center face of the Jat Vash right now in terms of an opposition. And assuming that she beamed off onto one of the many ships that was going off to that planet Maddox, that, you know, she's really going to be the person facing down with them again. Hopefully Elnor makes it so that they have a rematch, this time with no cheating and throwing knives, but uh, definitely not done with Rizzo anytime soon. Unfortunately, uh, as, as much as the XBs would have loved to, you know, tear her limb from limb. Well, who is the biggest big bad then, Mike? Do you think, like, she's probably, like, she and Narek are probably, like, they're less big bad than O. I think O has to be the biggest of the big bads. Right, but I guess the thing is, like, is O going to be there fighting you? You know, like, I guess when I'm thinking big bad, I'm thinking, like, when we end up getting in a firefight down on planet Maddox, assumingly, who's going to be down there actually physically facing off against you? Because I agree from, like, an organizational and a more macro perspective, O is the villain because O is has the power of an organization behind her, even though it actually does seem that 
we'll talk later about like Picard's uh, "you up" call to Admiral <laughs> Clancy, but it does seem like Starfleet, as a at, on the whole, is maybe starting to get around to the whole conspiracy side of things. But it seems like you know if they really did want to mobilize Starfleet forces to help out Picard, it would have to go through O. And you could imagine that either she's not filling that request or she's specifically filling that request knowing where they're going and to turn on them. Yeah, but I think if we do not destroy O before the end of the season, can we really call the season resolved? Mm, It's a good point. I mean, I guess it also depends on, I mean, do you think they're going to be right? Like, do you expect the final two episodes are going to be just a battle against the Romulans for the safety of the synths? Or do you believe that it's going to turn out that this prophecy was true and that the androids will be either become killing machines or will be like possessed by some sort of consciousness? And then that's going to all come to fruition as it aims to destroy the universe. Are you saying that we're going to get the Terminator 2 ending for Soji? Yes, Soji's going to sink into the lava and give a thumbs up to Picard on on the way out. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I guess I'll bring up sort of the theory I have right now as we're sort of still talking Romulan stuff, because this is something that uh, I got from Screen Crush, which is a great video series every week, sort of chronicling the various callbacks to other Star Trek series uh, in each episode of Picard. And Screen Crush's theory goes back to what we talked about, I think, last week when we saw Gerardi got her own version of the admonition from O. And we saw a shot of a planet exploding that looked very similar to the one that Spock saw when he mind-melded with the Mm -hmm. angel in Discovery that came from Control. So Screen Crush's theory is that, obviously, this civilization, you know, took place way, way back in the past. And Control, we assume, was sent way, way, way into the future alongside Discovery uh, using some random board cube devices that showed up in an episode of Voyager that can sort of send things back in time. Their theory presupposes that control is trying to sort of send its consciousness back into the past to still continue its mission, which was essentially to wipe out all sentient life so it could sort of start over again, feeling that, you know, the people are impure that currently infest our universe. But in order to do that, it would have to use a pretty advanced being like, for example, an android. So this this theory that I, I sort of am uh, aping right now is that the big bad and might end up being control after all that it's going to be the weirdest connection to discovery that the AI that we thought was out of our hair from the Star Trek canon is back and badder than ever as it actually is now sort of working over the consciousness of all the androids that Bruce Maddox worked on. This still breeds like a really bad retread of Terminator. <laughs> it really does. You just time travel and AI, you can't help but not make the comparisons, right? Yeah, I mean, is is Soji going to, like, have to mug somebody for a trench coat? Yeah, or, like, uh, Control's going to, you know, uh, take the form of Rizzo and call up Narek and try to sound like Rizzo, and then they'd have to ask a question to find out that that's not really Rizzo, and then they're on the run in the canals. Yep, and then um, and there's going to be somebody that gets murdered with a hand that turns into a machete blade, and... Mm-hmm. And then Elnor is going to wind up naked at a truck stop and ask for someone's clothes. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we have a pretty good track record of Star Trek Universe ripping off Terminator if Star Trek Deep Space Nine is any indication because Odo was basically created so yeah. that they could reuse that T-1000 technology. And then they said, let's make a whole planet full of him and then let's make him really, really evil. Yeah. 
what if you know what happens if there's a bunch of them do they make a lake yeah they make a lake it's great yeah and that's actually i mean the dominion their motto is not on uh sim- dissimilar to control's motto right this idea of like we find that the people that currently you know exist in this world are not worthy so it's our job to eradicate that to ensure that the universe uh properly works so i don't know if this is actually going to come to fruition it would be an interesting connection i honestly don't know how i would feel about that because then i don't know I, I sort of don't want my things to be too too interconnected you know as an mcu fan i already sort of i'm swimming in those waters anyway i don't need to necessarily pour more water onto that but it is an interesting idea and i mean there have been comparisons that have been made obviously with the ai themes between discovery and picard so it would make sense for them to be quite literally connected yeah, and the fact that all of the short treks are kind of overlapping these things really suggests that they are willing to inject pieces of Discovery into the new series. And, you know, it'd be just about the only series that they haven't injected something from at this point. That's actually true. Yeah, they've. So, I mean, actually, I believe they had, I mean, the Cassilian Opera, which Gerardi's been listening to, was, you know, the favorite activity of Hugh and Stamets. So I, I that's like the aside from those small Easter egg references, this would probably be the most outright reference to Star Trek Discovery, which you would say is like the most, you know, uh the direct link to Picard, but also takes place significantly before slash after Picard. So it's weird. Again, timelines are strange. Yeah, yeah. But I, I like it when they do things like that because it does sort of it lends some credibility to the idea that it's all in the same universe, but it doesn't have to call it out specifically and point at it like, look, 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 look what we did. This is that same piece of music. It's just kind of like it's there because it's it's all in the same universe. Right. Yeah. My my only thing and another reason why I'm, I wouldn't be too happy with this theory ended up happening is because it feels like that it's the same villain for both series, which just makes it feel a little yet less unique. You know, like they were facing down control at the end of Star Trek Discovery Season 2. If they're facing down control at the end of Picard Season 1, it starts to feel a little samey, especially since these are, you know, the two seasons that occurred right after one another. Yeah, and there's also the question that if control makes an appearance in Picard, does it then behoove viewers of Picard to go back and watch Discovery and will they feel lost if they haven't watched Discovery? And I think the show has done a great job up to this point of being its own self-contained thing that rewards you if you've seen the other series, but it never demands that you see it. And I think something that big would demand that you that you understand it from that perspective. Could it be like Control's cousin? Or maybe it's the uh, it's the Calypso technology just super evolved and decided to project itself back and that's why they're all going to start dancing on planet maddox to uh to funny face <laughs> is control's cousin rhythm nation 1814 i think so i think that's its screen name uh speaking of uh i mean we had a reference to like uh you know uh, oblique uh you know not like 1900s technology and i do love rafi referring to it as a walkman because like that's how from the verisimilitude, like how a 24th century person would refer to that, right? Like they would totally get the names mixed up because not everyone is obsessed with pop culture from the 20th century. Yeah, I I loved that little detail just because it was it was saying that the average person is not going to be able to rattle off, you know, 
baseball statistics like Ben Sisko or car parts like Tom Paris. It's like, oh, that was distant past. Like, what do you and I know about things that happened 300 years ago? Like, it's basically Hamilton and that's about it. Right. I would also say that uh, Rios is the guy, of course, to have a vinyl collection, right? Like, he totally would have a record player to put right above his series of existential novels. Yeah, it, it's very on brand for him. Although I, I never love it when somebody in the Star Trek universe is that obsessed with 20th century. Like 20th century was not that cool. Well, yeah, because he's reading what? He had some Hemingway in there, obviously had Camus with The Stranger. I believe actually there was a fictional book called Sirach and Existentialism. That's another great little Easter egg. Sirach was like probably the most famous Vulcan philosopher that we know of. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so at least at least he's kind of mixing it up, but you never have somebody who's totally obsessed with like mid 21st century stuff or somebody who's obsessed with like, oh, 18th century stuff. It would be as weird as if you had a friend and you went over to their house and they just had a bunch of like Baroque chandeliers and stuff and they only listened to Mozart. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and they had, to, I, I mean, I guess instead of a record player, though, would it be like a live orchestra performing it in their house, like a nice chamber quartet? Yeah, actually, it wouldn't be Mozart. Mozart is pure classical. It would be like Bach and Haydn. And like, you'd go to their house and somebody would have like the, they'd have the vintage instruments and they'd have like this historical performance ensemble sitting in the corner. Somebody's playing like a sackbutt. So I guess let's let's I guess stay on the Rios train because let's talk about the Rios origin story that we got because it was sort of like equal parts. We really got the comedy mask and the drama mask here, Jess. You know, the drama mask obviously came in the actual story itself, which is like this pretty heartbreaking story about him, uh, you know, really digging in on his father figure to the point where he commits suicide. And then on the other hand, we also have Santiago Cabrera doing five fun characters as Rafi tries to corral sheep. Yeah, reenacting the video to Alanis Morissette's ironic. <laughs> exactly. I, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed this, though. I think Santiago Cabrera was just having the time of his life with these characters. Like, they're so weird. Like, I think the ENH might be the weirdest one, personally. Like, the EMH, I think, is the most useful. The ENH is, like, a little creepy. Like, after uh, Rafi kisses his head... He puts his hands on his face like Macaulay Culkin and just sort of stays there for like 30 seconds too long. And it was very strange. I thought he had been frozen for a second and he would need to be rebooted. But he seems like the most childlike and sweet of them all. But yeah, it, it, I mean, between that and, you know, you could tell he had a lot of fun with the EEH. You know, get, I think the beret really made the character. He's saying kin Every like fourth word, which if you watch Outlander, you know that really is a piece <laughs> of Scottish parlance. So you could tell that like between the tortured side of the actual Rios and just the ridiculousness of all the other Rioses that this was Santiago Cabrera's episode. Okay, Mike. So let's rank the Rioses. Ooh. I mean, are you ranking them in terms of what character usefulness? Um, I would say I would say let's just go by how much we like them and that can be that can be how much do we like the character how useful do we find them how effective are they how effective is Santiago Cabrera at portraying them because I have a lot of thoughts. So I'm going to go ENH number 1 for me uh just because he seems like he's the character that he was the first one 
that we saw, he seems to be the most useful to Rafi when it comes to forming the whole octanary system. I know that Enoch, the the EEH is going to fill in the blanks a bit, but the ENH like seems to be the one that really sets her off on that path. And he seems to be like the most normal of them all, I think. Uh, so, I mean, I, I put him number one, I guess I put the EMH number two, like, he's not the biggest from a personality perspective, but he certainly, like, is the best at his job, you know, I think that Agnes Gerardi would still be in a coma, were it not for the EMH, so he certainly is the most necessary on that vessel. I'm gonna go EEH number three, I know he was just most recently introduced, but he is such a fun character, uh, and he seems like he's actually pretty useful as well. I guess that means give me Emmett number four as the tactical. Like, yes, he's a hungover mess, but I feel like the EHH is more off-putting to me. Like, he's definitely, and they're definitely more of a have an odd couple thing going on. So, like, I want to put them next to each other. Yeah, okay, I, I can go with that. Um, I, I gotta say, I think, I think the... I think the Irish navigation guy is number five for me. Ooh. Because it is not one of Cabrera's better accents. It it sounds sort of like when Paul Rudd has the leprechaun accent accent in <laughs> I Love You Man. It's like I kept expecting him to talk about they're always after me lucky charms. It it was it was very off putting and I he just feels like he's sort of a retread of the hospitality hologram, but you know, Without that, even that small amount of charm and hospitality hologram, I'm putting number four mm. just because he's such a he's such a dork. And then it gets a little tougher because I think you're right that that medical is one of the more useful ones. And he's certainly saved Gerardi and he's very good at his job. But, you know, he could just be the doctor from Voyager with an extra skin on him. Well, speaking so. of which, actually, spoiler alert for season two, apparently Robert Picardo announced on the cruise that he uh. is going to be reprising his role in season two. Man, Mike, I'm I'm so bummed. I, I got I get email about the cruise and every time they send me a new email, I'm like, I want to go be on the cruise. And obviously this year it would have been a bad idea. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I don't exactly know. I didn't follow up on what exactly happened there. It seemed like they were having a fun time up to that point, but I'm very curious as to how the hell that's going to happen, <laughs> but I'm excited nonetheless. If this becomes an unintentional Voyager reunion masked inside a TNG reunion, I'll be very excited. As long as we get some DS9 representation, like, what is, well, you know... Well, I mean, uh, if the actors keep dying, I don't know if that's going to happen. Hey, we still got plenty of people. Like, what's Avery Brooks up to these days, apart from, like, being a Scientologist? Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, uh, Siddig El-Fadir, I mean, he wasn't too long on Game of Thrones, so, like, he's pretty easy. I don't know what uh, Colin Meany's been doing. I saw him in the uh, the Tolkien biopic, but outside of that, I really haven't seen him do that much. Yeah, he's he's working hard. He could be he could be persuaded to come in. Like, get both the O'Briens. Like. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say Terry Farrell could be very easy to bring in. Yeah, but her character's dead. That's true. But I bring him in. Sorry, like, spoilers. But do like a do like a Sela thing, you know? Be like, oh, this trill braided with this other Romulan and provided this new character, you know? Maybe all the time, maybe all the timeline jumping they're going to do is going to erase those events of DS Nine season five or six or whatever it was. I mean, we've seen we saw Jadzia Dax have descendants in Deep Space Nine. Um, she and Worf had a child on one of the alternate timelines. I guess it's possible. And if you had a Trill and a Romulan that created a child, would that child be a Tromulan? 
I like that. And especially if they wear Tron gear, then maybe that makes the comparison that much more apt. They got the forehead ridge and the ears and the spots. Oh, I feel bad for them. This could be a mocking at school. Yeah, especially like if you have to go to school with a bunch of Klingons, you get your butt kicked on a daily basis. Right. Like you, you just feel like you don't fit into any category. You know, you're like a, a servant to many masters and a master of none. Yep. Yep. It's true. But back to the Rioses, I, I really love, I really love Emmett. Uh, I think he's a lot of fun. And I like the idea that if you're creating an AI, you're going to create an incompetent AI that yells and is drunk all the time. So we, we find out this episode that Rios, you know, first came on and I guess either accidentally or on purpose got scanned and it created, you know, all these holograms. And Ian says that he end up, ended up, you know, tuning down parts of them to obviously not become like five exact clones of him. Do you think like he specifically made Emmett the sloppiest, drunkest one of all? Or do you think they just happened to come with the personality? Well, I think it's it's more of a question of... I think each one of them reflects some aspect of of Rios's personality. And also, Mike, I think I would probably be more charitable toward all of these holograms if you and I had not done a podcast about Orphan Black. Very because true. Santiago Cabrera is great at what he's doing, and he's great at several of his hologram selves, but he's not Tatiana Maslany. I mean, nobody is. Even the even the characters that had clones on Orphan Black were nothing compared to Tantiana Maslany. She is by far the gold standard, and this is like barely Latinum, you know? But again, it's, it's accomplishing what needs to be accomplished. We'll see, you know, I, I don't know how much we're going to be using the Lost Serena if we're actually going planet side in future episodes. If not, this was a way to like give a send off to it by really having us finally meet the entire crew behind it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we finally. If we hadn't already put it to bed, we know now that Rios himself is not a hologram. Yes, finally, I think we've realized. But I like that theory so much. I wish it had been true. I mean, you know, I've been watching a lot of Westworld. Unless his memories have been programmed in in him, a la Dodge, about everything that happened on the Ibn Imagine, which, if so, woof to the person who did that, considering how much that apparently mentally scarred him, then it seems like Rios is the real Rios. Yeah, that's... That seems like what's happening here. Like there's one meat guy and a bunch of and a bunch of computer guys. Yeah, so I'll admit I was very surprised by the story of Captain Alonzo Vandermeer. Maybe it's just because I mean, at the time Star Trek, the majority of the series were being made, mental health and the concept of suicide was not particularly out there in pop culture. It was still a little bit taboo. So I, I feel like there weren't many cases where we sort of dealt with that. Like there was that one episode when Worf broke his back and may have been paralyzed and he asked uh, to be killed. There was actually a lot of suicide storylines involving Worf just because of the Klingon honor of it all. But I feel like it's very rare that we hear like, oh, this guy shot himself because of what he had to do. And so I was a little shocked. We obviously assumed when we heard, oh, I remember my captain's, you know, brains spewed on the side of a bulkhead that he had died in some sort of battle. But no, it was just due to the overwhelming guilt of having to gun down two who he thinks are people in cold blood. Yeah, it's interesting how much more willing this show is to talk about suicide than its predecessors. Uh, to the point where the first scene we see in this episode, there's a whole bunch of people oh, just yeah. kind of casually shoot themselves in the head. Um, so 
yeah, this is this is does come as kind of a surprise because we had heard previously that Rios had left Starfleet after he'd been traumatized by watching his captain die, but we didn't know any of the rest of this. And this is this feels very very convenient to me. This is the part of it that I really I'm having a hard time with. It feels like it's a little too much. And granted, everything we've complained about up to this point, they have immediately remedied in the next episode. You know, is O a Vulcan or a Romulan? Oh, she's both. She's half and half. Okay, great. And um, why why do they say that we can't have synthetic life and they inject Gerardi with a bunch of nanobots? Oh, those aren't nanobots. It's an isotope. Okay, great. And that even has some, we'll get into that in a second, but it just feels like this needs to be explained in a better way in the next episode, or I'm going to, it's going to taint my ability to enjoy this entire season. But why is it that Rios is like the one guy in the universe who's going to recognize Soji because someone who looked exactly like Soji was on his ship and it drove his captain to kill himself. That's Mm. so convenient. Why, how did all of these people come together? I'm actually a little surprised that in their adventures, Picard never showed a picture of Dodge to the crew, right? Because wouldn't he be like, we're looking for this, a girl that looks just like this. And then maybe that would sort of trigger the things. Because, yeah, it is a little weird that it took this late in the expedition for Rios to sort of have his little freakout moment. I guess the other question is, how many androids were produced that looked like them? You know, was it just the three? Or were there more? And in that case, does that mean those those clone, those androids had more run-ins with people? Or were they just sort of, you know, sent to live on the planet? Why were these two sent out in a ship? In the first place, was it try to make first contact? That I feel like you could make an entire short treks episode. I know we're just putting out requests for short treks at this point, but about this whole thing with the Ibn Magic, because yeah, there's so much information put out here and so many implications behind it. But it feels like they really just push it out to, to be like, we got to find out Rios's backstory before we finally conclude this season. Yeah, it was it was just a little too convenient that he happens to be the captain of the ship that is spearheading this mission to initially find this girl who is exactly like the girl that kind of changed the entire trajectory of his life. That's too many coincidences. And if they don't have a really good reason why all of these people came together in this formation, it's going to be too many, too many random blind coincidences for my liking. Who drew the picture of Beautiful Flower and Jenna, which you feel like Maddox sort of ran out of names by the time he got to Beautiful Flower, right? I mean, it seems like we have like a, a flower theme going on. I think Dodge and Soji both said their father named orchids after them. Jana, I believe, means rose in some language. And he's like, Beautiful Flower, that's you, sir. Go get on this this runabout and go off into space and see what happens. Alternate theory, Mike. These androids are all like three years old when they get sent out into the world. Mm. Hasn't, you know, haven't you ever been around a three-year-old that insists that they be called something other than their actual name? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I can go into an entire dialogue about my family members that do that. I could imagine that being like, no, 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 Mr. Maddox. My name is not, uh, you know, Thorn. I'm beautiful (laughs) flower today. Yeah, exactly. And and you must refer to me only as beautiful flower and I will not answer to anything else. That is that is 100% what happened there. And 
or beautiful flower is just like super into meditation. Yeah, I was, and it also reminded me. But I feel like there was a TOS episode where like they ran into space hippies. And it's not the Spock's brain quality of episode, but I remember it not being terrifically good. But that's what sort of the name "Beautiful Flower" reminded me of. Do you think Rios drew the the like the police sketch profile of those two people? Because if so, like he's a pretty damn good illustrator. Yeah, everybody is is very very good at art in this universe. I mean, I like, guess I don't know when you have a live in a cashless society, you can invest in as many art classes as you want to about financial repercussions. I suppose. Well, I, I suppose they have something like the Great Courses. Mm, sort of like a liberal arts education at Starfleet Academy? Right. You just have, like, distance learning all the time. Like, you're spending a lot of time out there in space, and you can only read so much Camus. <laughs> That's very true. So we obviously saw that Rios had—it was cool to see him sort of, like, have his footlocker, where, like, despite him being so despondent over what happened, he still has his uniform, his old pips— so I guess he was on the command path. Do we know, was he the first officer to Vandermeer, or was this more like a Janeway, Harry, Kim situation? I think it was outlined when we first met him. I think he said he was the XO. Okay, yeah, now I'm remembering. Yeah, absolutely. And that makes a lot more sense, too. This would be like a situation where like Riker would, you know, yell at Jean-Luc Picard for making the wrong decision and in this case, Vandermeer just took things a bit more roughly than Picard sort of shutting himself up in his ready room and drinking some Earl Grey hot. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, I, will, I will also say that, you know, say what you want to about the storyline and the revelations, but I liked Rafi being the one to sort of coach Rios through this because I think it's a great reflection of their relationship that we have this paired with the scene from a, a couple episodes ago where, like, He's talking her through her emotional time after her son turns her away. It's actually interesting parallels where, like, they both bring coffee to each other, knowing that the other one's, you know, pretty drunk as all get out. So I think it, it's, it's a great representation of their relationship, how it's not just Rios being the caretaker to Rafi. It's the fact that they do really support each other, that that street goes both ways. And they both have damage, but they both know the other person has damage. Yeah, it's it's a great relationship that the two of them have cultivated. And also... We got to say that Rafi was the um, MVP of the episode. Like, just oh, completely. We we figured out exactly why she's there. And in the past, there's been this hints of like she has connections and she knows stuff. But watching her unpack everything and figure out who did what, when, and why, and getting the right questions out of the emergency holograms. And putting the information together and you could practically like watch the Rubik's Cube clicking together mm -hmm. in her brain as this all came together. It was really great, really masterful to watch her do this. Yeah, there was a really fun moment when uh, she's talking with Ian, I think, at first. And they're talking about the octanary system. And there's this one tick that she does where like she like rubs the back of her neck with her hand. And it almost seems like it's not exactly like an addict's tick, but this is idea of like, we talked about this before that she sort of is addicted to this idea of like conspiracy theories and it's almost like sort of like seven of nine wiring into the board cube right it's sort of embracing this activity that you know you shouldn't be indulging in but it sort of ticks that pleasure sensor part of the brain and you could feel like her almost behave in a different manner especially when she finds out that she was actually on the right track that after all these years suspicions were confirmed and i also will give her huge ups for 
when Picard and Soji arrive, like she has to go to desperate measures. But I'm so glad that she was able to convince Picard in that moment of like, hey, just so you know, Gerardi betrayed you. And Picard does the very grown worthy thing at first of like, what are you talking about? I don't believe you. That can't possibly be true. But he very easily comes around soon after that. So we don't have an entire episode of Rafi trying to convince Picard that Gerardi was a spy the entire time because she was. Yeah, because Rafi's just that good. Right. It's not going to be the shut up Wesley of it all where like Wesley knew that lore was evil, but nobody would believe him. The Tartuffe of it all. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I like that she's like, I got receipts and in the form of the EMH. Yeah, exactly. Which I, talking about Gerardi here, because I totally under overestimated, I guess I should say the length of time that she was in a coma. I would say it was probably over the course of what? Like, I don't know. I don't know how long it talk, took them to get to Nepenthe. But I would say less than a day she was under, assumingly. Yeah, and she knew exactly what the thing to take would be that would not only knock her out, it would neutralize the isotope. Yeah, I mean, I guess that was quick planning in the moment, right? Because she synthesized that. Like, she, it wasn't exactly lying around. She knew exactly what had to be in there. So, I mean, good on her for that, for that quick thinking. Maybe she was thinking about it the entire time as they were being tracked, and she finally decided to literally pull the trigger. But... I mean, I guess it ended up being a much less of a risky situation than you initially thought, because they, even though she obviously had a lot to morally reconcile when she gets brought back to uh, consciousness, it was, you know, a, a, little, a quick little nap, and then she was back up for some more. Um, yeah, it was, it was like nothing, it's like nothing happened. And the thing that I, that I found out after the fact that I think is really interesting to highlight here is that the isotope that was in her blood was uh, viridium and we saw this in star trek 6 also yes that's how uh spock found kirk on the snow jail planet right yep yep it was like he slapped it on kirk's back before he disappeared and that was how he found him and apparently the stuff that gerardi injected herself with is like the well-known antidote to viridium ah, speaking of romulan conspiracies yeah no kidding I gotta watch that again. It's been ages. It's it's a fun one. Obviously, I think it pales in comparison to the other two even-numbered Star Trek films from the original series canon, but there's still some interesting stuff in there, especially, I think, as we just mentioned, like as it compares to sort of the conspiracy-laden stuff that has occupied some of these more modern Star Trek series. I think it definitely holds up sans the scene where they talk about a man keeping his genitals in his knees. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'd forgotten about that bit. Uh, it's one of those things, like, if I'm going to sit down and watch a Star Trek movie, it's always, I always want to watch four. And even though, you know, there's a wealth of varying degrees of quality and entertainment out there available to me, it's like, that's the one I, I always reach for. Yeah, exactly. And it's not like you necessarily, like, unless you want to, like, actively stick it out, like you're saying, I'm going to do a marathon. You're not necessarily turning to six as your first choice you know in your power ranking it's more so like that's more so like the uh the ehh of it rather than sort of the <laughs> en at the top yeah yeah or not the bottom for you ian would be like star trek three or or uh i guess or five depending i've never asked your opinions on the uh the odd number of original series movies but i'm making an assumption you know search for spock is not as bad as everyone says it is i think it's just tough to follow up wrath of khan yeah. Uh, I, th I think Christopher Lloyd makes a fun Klingon, personally. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's maybe that's all of it. It's like having a named actor, kind of the kind of the same way that that having Kirstie Alley in the previous one was exciting. 
Yeah, you were. It's a direct correlation, right? They're like, well, we couldn't get Christy Alley. Let's bring on an equally high number name. Let's bring on Christopher Lloyd and put him in a bunch of Klingon loaf and have him gallivant about. Granted, he will not chew the scenery as much as Ricardo Montalban, but it'll be close. Yeah, it was. It definitely was close. <laughs> but get, getting back to the Gerardi of it all, because I, I think I've realized, Jess, that I think Allison Pill might be my favorite actress on Picard because I think she's just threading so many needles and she's doing it so so well particularly this scene where she talks with Soji and it's so complicated for this character right because they mentioned this several times this is her life's work what she had been working towards before she got involved in this big conspiracy and it's actually in front of her and you know she asks almost the same questions as Kestra yeah a person several years her junior did but it's almost like just fascination gets yet ecstasy at the same time like she's she's smiling through tears but it's so weighted because she knew what she had to do to get to this point and she also knows that part of you know the conspiracy that she got brought in on was that she had been assumingly ordered to kill soji and even though she tells soji right there right then like i would never want to kill you after meeting you you can imagine that like there's some guilt there considering what she's already had to do to get to the point of seeing her. Yeah, it's got to be such a weird journey she's been on, where she's been researching all of this stuff against the will of the entire Federation and making these, you know, tiny strides and then finding out, oh, someone made, you know, your old mentor made these huge leaps that you didn't even know about. Oh, yeah, and the reason he did that you know, it's going to bring about the apocalypse and you need to kill the android you meet. But this android is like the cool thing you wish you'd built and it eats and sleeps and poops and cries like a baby alive. That's really exciting. It, it's it's really it's a fun mix of emotions. Right. Because, I mean, this is everything you've worked for right here in front of you. But what did you have to do to get here? And to see where Gerardi started, which we thought she'd sort of be like the Tilly, like the awkward fish-out-of-water comic character, to see where she is now, which may be like one of the most broken, traumatized characters on the crew, like just watching her get brought out of sickbay and her just sort of joking like, so, you know, I'm not, I'm done murdering people. Like it had that darkness <laughs> to it, but it felt like the joy was sort of removed from her delivery that we might have experienced in the first three episodes. Yeah, she has been on the weirdest journey. And it's it's, it's nice that they call attention to it. That this is so this is so weird for her because I think Star Trek in the past has kind of just assumed that anybody that gets on a starship is just going to roll with it. And yeah. she really has not. Yeah, and I think, you know, the evolution that we sir, see her undergo in 8 episodes is Something that takes like 80 episodes for other characters to undergo in Star mm-hmm. Trek. It's like they went fast and furious with the character development. And we even see it here as well with, I think, maybe my personal favorite scene of the episode, which going back a bit further is the scene between Soji and Picard, because they took a baby step in the previous episode, right? When essentially the entire Troy Riker family got Soji to trust Picard. But things are still super awkward. They're eating their cold eggs. And I just, I really loved the conversation that Picard had with Soji because we got to hear Picard really speak and wax profane about Data. Like, obviously, his loss 
held such monumental weight in his heart, specifically because Data sacrificed himself to save Picard. But I feel like we never heard him, we never heard him do, speaking of Wrath of Khan, he never, like, gave the eulogy at, you know, Data's funeral by saying, of all the people I know, he's the most human. We don't necessarily know what he'd been thinking the entire time, and now he had the opportunity to vocalize it. And more importantly, Soji presents this really interesting thought experiment of, how would you have wanted him to remember you? And I just thought the scene ended so beautifully and so simply when Soji tells him that he loved him. And I think Picard saw so much of himself in Data in feeling like not necessarily a fish out of water, but like someone who didn't necessarily fit in, had his own little quirks, but still like a very, you know, unsatiable curiosity. And Patrick Stewart has this great moment where after Soji said he loved you, like you can feel the sentiment like his eyes soften you could tell that's something that he like always wanted to hear but he could never hear from data because data doesn't understand the concept of love but to actually have that vocalized you know it's almost like data is literally talking beyond the grave to picard and that that means the world to him in that moment yeah it was it was a beautiful interaction that the two of them had and i i kind of i could have sat there and watched them have like two hours of breakfast over this because i think there are a lot of other roads they could have gone down and certainly winding up at this spot where he really is able to feel that connection to data and to have that conversation about data is really important but when soji says the bit about all of her memories feeling like they belong to someone else and that she doesn't know herself. I really thought we were going down an inner light tangent. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting that they really haven't made reference to that episode at all, aside from obviously like the flute melody being used in the opening credits. But that's such a pivotal episode for Picard, too, in terms of like, how do you live out a life and then continue living after that? You'd imagine that that's a comparable situation. Yeah, it felt like they were going to invoke it. And it was, it was jarring to me that they didn't. Uh, I, I like where they ended up with it. And I think it makes a lot more sense to what they're building to, but it really, it felt like you can't have that conversation with Jean-Luc Picard and have him not bring it up. What'd you make about Soji's journey in this episode? Because like you said, it goes from like this warm conversation with Picard to after the big ready room conversation when everyone puts everything together, she sort of sends them on the path back to her home planet. But she seems to be regarding Rios in particular very coldly to the point where she tells him like, you don't, do you have a family? Do you understand what it's like to have someone decimate? Do you think it's just like her now that the whole Janice stuff has been brought out, like it's almost a second stage of her awakening that now she knows where to go and who she needs to protect. Yeah, it's it's almost like she was activated in another way. Yeah, that's sort of the feeling that I got as well. And I guess we saw different stages of Dodge being activated, but it's interesting to sort of, I don't know, it's sort of like, uh, what was that show, Blind Spot, where the girl yeah. woke up with the tattoos and like yep. she just found out different parts of herself. Like that's sort of what, what Soji's going through here where like someone will say something and it'll just trigger something in her where suddenly she now remembers this part of in her encyclopedic android brain. Yeah. And I don't know that I'm here for Star Trek blind spot. <laughs> I gave that show a really fair shot. Yeah. I think that, I mean, my hope is that maybe there'll be maybe one more moment where once she actually gets to play it at Maddox and she maybe sees some androids, like the final piece of her will become unlocked and she'll be the most knowledgeable because right now she's pretty much seems to be going off a of muscle memory as to like how she needs to get there, what she needs to access. 
Yeah, and it's it's interesting what pieces she knows to cling to that that feel real to her and what ones don't because you know, we had a little bit of this at the top of the last episode where Picard says to her, you know, I I'm here because your sister sent me and she's like, but I just found out I don't actually have a family. How can it be true that I have a sister? And now it's like okay, we know that Dodge was real and now we find out there's like all of these other identical people or at least one other identical person to Soji. It's like, did Soji know she was an identical triplet or is this something that she's like, she's just going to kind of roll with this new information she got? It's, it's a little weird to me. Like how many of them are there? Right. Was Jana, I mean, Jana was existing nine years before Soji and Dodge did. So like, was that sort of like the prototype? of the Soji Dodge model that ended up sort of, you know, blowing up or getting killed and they had to start all over. I'm just intrigued by like the methodology of Maddox. I mean, it looks like we're going to be finding out about it soon, assumingly, because it seems like we are on our way with uh, Narek in hot pursuit. Yeah. It looks like we're going where Soji wants us to go and we better call up deep space 12 and tell him we're not going to be making it there after all. Yeah, darn it. We won't get to stop by the promenade, see what shops are in. Yeah, I wonder if Deep Space 12 is better or worse than Deep Space 9. Well, it's deeper in space, so something tells me <laughs> it's a little worse. Like, I feel like it's more in more disrepair the further you get out there, just because, like, the closer you are to Earth, the easier it is to just, like, fly out there and, you know, make some easy repairs. Like, but I feel like, considering we know that Quark's apparently franchise, you feel like they'd have to have, like, a quarks on every deep space station, right? I mean, that's just good business. I would imagine so, considering that he was able to somehow make it work even in the midst of like the gray area that was Deep Space Nine. You think like, all right, well, that was the worst we could possibly do. Let's see if we could set ourselves up. Though again, if if we get worse the further we get out, Deep Space Twelve might just be like the Wild West in terms of who's controlling what. Well, you know, Deep Space Nine started out as the Wild West, and then it turned out that there was some actually important stuff there. So uh, Deep Space 12 is like what Deep Space Nine was supposed to be. It's like speaking way out there. Speaking of, Deep, speaking of Deep Space 12, again, I am just so like Picard got a firm effing no from Admiral Clancy. <laughs> Can we talk about this, please? And he says, like, you know what? I think I'm going to give her a call again. I'm going to give her a ring-a-ding. Maybe this time she'll say yes. He turned out to be right, but wow, the guff on this man. I I just, I want Clancy in there every episode to tell Picard to F off. I, I This one felt a little gratuitous to me. Like, the first time I talked about this in our episode three podcast, I really liked it because, like, it really felt like it, it dug in the point of okay, like, this really shows how much he crossed the line with Starfleet and how he is basically persona non grata here. This was basically her just, like, it seems like she maybe has a problem. Like, there might be a swear jar in her office, considering she just is a little loose-lipped with that type of language just to have Picard shut his trap. Do you think Commodore O enforces the swear jar? Oh my god, yes. That's how. She, I mean, I don't know, again, how you do that in a cashless society, but uh, I can imagine that that's something that she would really want to champion. Like, and maybe Android would be a swear as well. Yeah, it could be. Like, that's just a pejorative now. <laughs> exactly. Like, oh, we don't say that. It's one of the seven words that you can't say. <laughs> yeah. So, which which word came off the list to make room for Android? 
Oh, well, apparently F, considering that Clancy is now just saying it willy-nilly. Yeah, I, I like that you could say the F word in Star Trek now. This feels it's, like a new development. It's just very strange to me. And I, I still think they're trying to find the proper way to use it. Like, I think the sheer, you know, effing hubris is probably still my favorite so far. Even Gerardi this episode being like, sorry, I effed it all up. Felt a little strange. Also, there was this thing at the end where after, you know, we do Clancy out, Picard does this weird, like, clap. And I didn't tell if he was, like, clapping like I did it or if he looked like he was, like, gonna slap her because he was so angry with her. And you know how you do that when, like, I don't know, you're talking on the phone with someone and then you hang up and you're, like, mime that choking <laughs> and animation of, like, he was... I, I could not tell why Picard did that in that moment. Yeah, that was... I barely even noticed that, but now that you mention it, you're right. That's very weird. I Yeah, like, I mean, I guess he was happy, right? He got his... I mean, his plan at the moment was to just get Starfleet reinforcements, and then make leeway for Planet Maddox. So I guess he found out that both with Soji coming during the ship and them realizing just how, you know, high of a priority this was, they were just going to skip it and hope that they could sort of take him on on their own. It's it's very weird to me that this is basically the same story Picard had up front when he met with Clancy and she told him to F off, and he tells her this time, she's like, oh, well, why didn't you say so? I'll send all of Starfleet to go and help you. Yeah, I wonder what changed. Was it like, oh, we found Bruce Maddox and he was dead? Or, you know, is it like other information that came to light? Like, what evidence does he have? I wonder what changed Clancy's tune. Maybe something happened internally in Starfleet? Yeah, did she, is she on to O at this point? That would be interesting. Like, maybe now that Oh, feels like she's closing in on Soji. Maybe the visage is finally slipping a little bit. And Clancy, I mean, Clancy did admit, admittedly, in episode three, like the reason why she reached out to Oh is because she's like, Picard's acting insane, but there might be something there. So check it out. So it never seemed like she was particularly in denial about it. It's just more so that I think her curiosity was negated by Oh in the moment. Yeah. And then she's like, wait a minute. Oh was really quick to tell me that everything was okay. Do we think that Rizzo was still operating as an undercover Starfleet agent, or did she, like, put in her leave once she formally decided to go on the cube? Yeah, because, see, that would have been weird. It's like, I haven't heard from O in a while, and Rizzo went on leave for, like, two months at this point. And that kind of happened all at the same time. That's kind of a weird coincidence. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how much. Again, for an organization that really likes to clean up their tracks, maybe they just got a little sloppy. I mean... Rizzo is someone to get sloppy with her tactics, which might affect the way we move forward from here. The the last thing I want to say about this episode is, I don't know, may, maybe it's it's me just sort of, you know, watching this episode in the current times that we live in. But to have Picard finish the episode by saying, you know, they may be right about what happened 200,000 years ago. The past had written, but the future is left for us to write. We have powerful tools. We have optimism and the spirit of curiosity. All they have is secrecy and fear. It, it assuages me a little bit. I mean, Star Trek at, in, in general, I mean, Roddenberry's vision was always, always about this idea of optimism in a world where you feel like there's so much stuff bearing down on you every day. You can look forward to this idea of this ideal future where all that stuff is assumingly solved, even though problems do exist. And, you know, I think Picard is perfect in this moment to a character like Rios, who is so troubled and so down in the dumps all the time. But it's it's nice to hear these words sometimes, as as weird as it may be just coming out of a fictional character as they're about to fly into a big old wormhole onto a planet full of robots. I, I was happy we ended the episode on that message, even if it was cut off by Soji walking in. 
Well, yeah, especially in a series that has grappled so directly with trauma in a way that previous Star Trek series really haven't, and is kind of insinuated that this utopian society is still very far from utopian. It's nice to end on a little bit of a positive note where you just have Picard saying that today is where your book begins and the rest is still unwritten. Oh my god, feel the rain on your skin. It might be acid rain. I will also say from that scene, little Easter egg, uh, Vandermeer's acquaintance, Picard said she, he found out about him because he worked with his uh, colleague Marta, who some might remember from the episode Tapestry, as Picard's not only close uh, Starfleet, uh, Starfleet Academy friend, but also a little bit of like a crush romantic interest back in the day when Picard was a youngin. Yeah, I, that that goes back to the episode... Um, is it the one where Q sends him on the flashback and he has the alternate history or is Yeah, it's 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 tapestry. It's the yeah. uh it's the the it's a wonderful life thing where he doesn't get stabbed by the Nausicans and then he becomes his own little like sheepish blue blue shirt uh, you know, engineering person instead of a captain. Yep, yep. And yeah, I, I thought that was again, it's one of those things that where your deep knowledge of the series is rewarded, but you don't necessarily like if they just drop a name, it's not the biggest deal. Exactly. Like if you didn't know Marta, you could just be like, oh, yeah, I guess she's a person like Vandermeer. We're just sort of making up names now. But no, there is a, some significance there. And you, I guess that also means that Picard was able to, I guess, keep in touch with Marta for a little while, even if their relationship did not necessarily pan out at the end. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's the same way you look up your exes on Facebook. I will also say, though, I think one thing, that as, as much as I love that episode, it was always just very weird that Picard was playing himself as younger, and he tries to do that romantic scene with Marta, and it's just very strange in retrospect. I'm pretty, also, I'm pretty sure the actress who played Marta was like 17 or something. Yeah, it's true. Like, they're not going to get her to come back and play herself. I mean, maybe she'd be able to and actually like, I mean, unless you put her in old age makeup. Otherwise, maybe it's just that she's, I don't know, maybe she's revealed to be a secret Romulan as well. And she's (laughs) just aging much younger than Picard. Yeah, or you just get the people that do Mandy Moore's makeup in This Is Us. (laughs) Exactly. Just bring her in for all the various time periods we're going to see Marta in. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, maybe that's another short trek that's coming to us, Mike. Although I think at this point, we should just say that we want an anthology series where every episode is its own, like, spinning out from some random thing somebody said in an episode. <laughs> There's enough there to fill an entire three seasons worth of short tracks. I'm just saying, if you pick the random references that people make or random stories that they end up telling that we don't necessarily see, like, there's a short track for that. Yeah, I, I'm I'm here for it. I want a whole season of short tracks. I agree. So, Mike, is there anything else we need to touch on in this episode before we sing it a lullaby and put it to bed? I don't think so. I mean, we really, there was, again, so much revelation here, which prompts a lot of theory. I think there was a good amount of character stuff in there as well. You know, in retrospect, I kind of wish we had more time marinating in the Picard Soji of it all, especially in the Seven of Nine of it all. But the fact that we even touched upon that, I think, speaks to the magnitude and depth that this show has really pulled off well. And I am very, very excited to see what the last two episodes are, considering that, like, this is not nearly the sci-fi action show that Discovery is, but it really does feel like we're, we have to be building towards, like, a big, epic conclusion. I'm intrigued to see how Picard does that. 
Yeah, I am as well. I, I feel like it's all been building to what we're going to start to see next week. And I really want to see how it resolves itself. And I have every faith that given that every single plot thing that we have complained about up to this point has been quickly resolved and explained with kind of this sort of head patting patience, like, you know, just hang around a little while longer and we'll, you know, we'll reveal all of it and it will all make sense. And it all does. I think that there's no way they can fail at bringing us something great for these last two episodes. Do you think, because the Discovery episode was initially done as one entire episode, and then CBS All Access allowed them to cut it into two parts so they could put more footage in, do you think the next two episodes were also made as one episode, or do you think we're going to get like a succinct ending to next week's episode? I think we're getting a huge cliffhanger at the end of next week's episode. Okay. I could see that. I mean, again, it depends on like the way it was produced, but I feel like they could find a moment that is like a big gotcha or a big dun 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 to end the week with so that everyone goes into the finale absolutely pumped. And I cannot believe, Jess, we are two weeks away from the finale. And we still have no idea when any of their Star Trek series are coming back, but Picard is coming to an end. Yeah, but we will be here until the bitter end of Picard. And then if we have to sit on our hands for a couple of months waiting for Discovery... We'll, we'll cope somehow. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we want to hear from you all out there listening because we know there was so much in this episode. I'm sure there's plenty we missed and plenty we need to hear more about. So we would love to get your feedback and questions and anything you, you want to tell us about this episode or about Star Trek Picard in general. We love to hear from you and a couple of different ways you can do that. You can leave us a comment at poshorecaps.com. Find the page for this episode. Leave a comment there. Uh, you can also, the quickest way to probably get in touch with us is on Twitter, and you can tweet at me, at Haymaker Hattie. You can tweet at me, at a Mike Bloom type. You can check out the Picard writing I'm doing every week on comic book resources, cbr.com slash tag slash Picard. I wrote up, as always, a weekly episode recap for Broken Pieces. Suffice to say, a lot to talk about, as we talked about in this podcast, and also just like a little quickie article about the Jat Vash conspiracy, what the admonition was and what it means moving forward. So if you want a refresher of what we talked about an hour and a half ago, feel free to check that out. Otherwise, I'm going down the hatch with Josh Wiggler every week covering Lost, doing lots of survivor writing and podcasting as well. So check it all out as we start rounding the corner here on the adventures of John Luke Picard, at least for now, before he runs into the doctor next season. Yeah, I, I'm sure the doctor is just going to throw a spanner into the whole works. Um, you can also find me talking with Josh Wiggler every week about The Walking Dead. And we're having a really great time doing that. It's a surprisingly good season, and we're having a lot of fun talking about that as well. So if you like this podcast, we love hearing from you in the iTunes store. You can rate and review us, and that helps more people find the podcast, expands the scope, and increases the level of dialogue and all of that fun stuff. Um, so... With all of that, we want to thank you very much for tuning in this week. Live long and prosper, and we'll speak to you again next week. 